Hello, and welcome to the Friday Reporter. I'm Lisa Camuso Miller, your host, and proud to be partnering with PR Daily. Because PR Daily is a tremendous resource for communicators, not only for tactics and tools that make us smarter at what we do, but also for conferences and events that can help us connect with others who are doing what we uh, do every day. And that's why I'm really looking forward to November 17th. They're hosting a conference called The Future of Communications, partnering with Ragon Communications. You can find out more about it on prdaily.com. In fact, you can also get $100 off your registration if you use the code FRIDAYREPORTER. Well, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. I am having a a great time talking to a handful of reporters that cover the great and fabulous state, sorry if you think otherwise, of New Jersey and its surrounding regions. I'm lucky enough today to have Jonathan Tamari with me from the Philadelphia Inquirer. John, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Glad to do it. So, John, uh, I know you, you... Yep, you're born and raised Jersey guy, but somehow end up covering the Philadelphia suburbs inside New, uh, well, not inside New Jersey, inside of Washington, D.C. Tell me a little bit about your background. How'd you get into this? And how does a guy from North Jersey cover South Jersey and Philadelphia in the Washington, D.C. area? Yeah, so, you know, if, if you want to talk big picture on journalism, you know, my my origin story has really two parts. Um The first is that, you know, I just loved, growing up, I loved writing. I loved creative writing. I loved anything I could do, you know, with writing. Like, that was always the class I was most excited about as a kid. Mm -hmm. I got to high school, and I took a journalism class. I realized that, you know, there was this job where I could write every day or or several times a week. And, you know, they would send me money at the end of the week for that. And this was, you know, an incredible thing. And, And so, you know that was the first thing that really drew me into it. And, and so I worked on my high school newspaper and, and did all that through school. And then my senior year of high school, uh, I don't know if you remember the, the 96 Olympics were in Atlanta mm-hmm. and the torch was going, was being, you know, going on a relay throughout the country. And yeah. one of the stops was right on the corner of the street that I grew up on. No and kidding. The, yeah. And so the day the torch was coming, you know, the whole neighborhood was out. Everybody was waiting for the bus to show up. And me and my best friend were out there. And we said, hey, you know, we're editors of our school paper, which was true. Mm-hmm. And the media folks were like, all right, come on the bus. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. And so right there in front of, you know, we're seniors, you know, we're feeling ourselves as it is. And, <laughs> and the whole neighborhood watches us, you know, walk onto the bus and basically, you know, become part of the media pack following the relay. And, uh, and that was this moment where I realized that like, not only do you get to write as a reporter, but you get to see a lot of these events, uh, up close and, and bring those events to other people, um, Mm -hmm. and and kind of give them a sense of what it was like, what it sounded like, what it looked like, the things they might not see on television. Um, and that really just set me on my path to being a reporter. Um, and, 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 you know, and I've been able to do that with covering, I've covered sports. So I've brought sporting events to people, what it's like in the locker room after the Eagles game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've covered politics, you know, to bring people what it's like in the room during the State of the Union, during the Pope's visit to Congress, you know, at campaign events. Um, and those were the things that really, really first motivated me to become a reporter. Yeah. Um, uh, 
and then I'll just tell you this this the last piece of it really cemented it. Um, in my very first day, I got hired. I went to school. I traveled very briefly after school, and then I got hired for um, uh, at a small paper in Central Jersey. You're probably familiar with the Home News Tribune. Based uh-huh. in, uh, it was based in East Brunswick, New Jersey, at the time. Yeah. Um, and my very first day was 9/11. And oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, the the plane struck the morning I was getting ready for my first day. And, you know, I wasn't supposed to be into work until that afternoon. I was working a night shift, but mm-hmm. I realized like, even then I knew like, this is the kind of thing you just go to work for. Yeah. And, um, just kind of realizing that day as I, as you know, all the instincts were to stop and to just kind of watch and, 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 and be in touch with your family that like we had work to do and we had interviews to do. And, you know, my fifth day I went and I spoke to families who were waiting for word, um, you know, from, from their sons and, uh, you know, just felt an incredible responsibility that day to kind of tell their stories. I couldn't believe they were talking to me because I wouldn't want to talk to some stranger about that. But then as I spoke to them, I realized that they wanted someone to tell their stories Mm -hmm. and that just felt like such a responsibility and, again, it was just like another thing that cemented my belief in the importance of journalism and the importance of telling stories um, and the importance of, of accuracy. And, and, uh, and, and that kind of just set me on the path that I've been on for, for, you know, 20 years now. Wow. Well, 9-11, I worked for the governor of New Jersey, and I've told this story a couple of times now. I mean, you know, obviously the state capital is closer to lower Manhattan than Albany is, so we were there day two, you know, nine, 12, and then every day after for many, many weeks, and then attended the funerals of those hundreds of people that we lost uh, in New Jersey. And so, yeah, I mean, the importance of the media at that time was very clear to me too, from the other side of the, of the, of the ledger. And that is that not only telling those stories, but those families needed you to get the word out because on, you know, on the very very um, off chance, perhaps there'd be somebody who saw that story and could help them um, mm-hmm. either either find their loved ones or at least figure out what may have been their fate. Um, and so that's tremendous. That's our first day. You're at the Home News and Tribune, right? And yes. now that paper is uh, Gannett, and it's there. They're in the same family as the Asbury Park Press, which is my hometown paper. So, um, wow, that's great. That's terrific. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, those are two really cool, fun, and I can, I get it. I get you're intoxicated by it because here you are. You're surrounded by that real, real tangible energy that is um, news coverage. So, how is it that uh, that now you find yourself in a place where? I've said this before on plenty of other episodes and I'll say it again because everybody needs an education about the fact that the state of New Jersey does not have a media market, that it's covered by Philadelphia and New York media, which makes it especially difficult to be a PR person. We certainly, I feel like we're among the best because we have to figure out how to break into these tremendous other media markets to get our story told. But you're now covering that specific area, that Southern Jersey and uh, Philadelphia region for uh, here in Washington, D.C. Tell me a little bit about how that works for you. What do you, what kinds of stories do folks pitch you? What kinds of things are relevant and important? Looks like you do a lot of campaign coverage. Talk to me a little bit about the stories you care about. 
Yeah, and so the the coverage has evolved over the years. I've been in Washington uh, since 2012, mm-hmm. and initially I came down here and was doing a lot of coverage of the delegation, the congressional delegation, so House members and Senate members from South Jersey, from the Philadelphia region, mm-hmm. and then the senators from New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and kind of reporting on what their roles were in the big issues of the day. Um, so, you know, for example, Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey is, you know, one of the Democrats' leading voices on both immigration reform and foreign policy. And so when one of those issues would really be front and center, we would do a story about kind of where he was at on that, what he was pushing for, and, and how that related to where other members of Congress were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was... For a long time, there were a number of Republicans from the Philadelphia suburbs who were um, more moderate in relation to a lot of the other members of the House Republican caucus. Mm -hmm. And the times would be at odds with them and could be kind of often could be the deciding votes on issues where, uh, you know, there was a split in the Republican Party. You know, they were often some of the ones kind of on the fence and which way they went could often determine whether a bill was going to make it through the House or not when mm-hmm. Republicans were in control of the House. So that was a major early focus uh, for me. And I covered, um, you know, I covered their campaigns. I covered the 2016 Pennsylvania Senate race, which was this brutal race because both parties knew it was, you know, one of the few races that year that was really going to decide control of the Senate. Mm-hmm. At the time, it set spending records Um And then more recently, we have really taken a wider lens picture of Pennsylvania politics uh, because it's such a swing state, because it's so crucial to national politics. uh, And because we realized in 2016 that covering just Philadelphia left out, you know, even though you have Philadelphia and the suburbs, it left out a huge part of Pennsylvania that, um, you know, really has different cultural values, different yes. political values, mm-hmm. um, and that kind of it, it could get, if you only focus on Philly and the suburbs, it would give people a distorted picture of the politics of the state. Correct. So we've yeah. really expanded our coverage to be to try to be the paper of record of politics in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. in this state that is a swing state in every presidential race. That is a hugely important Senate, has hugely important Senate races and House races. Um, and so I think more recently, what our my coverage, I think, is really focused on is the ways that Pennsylvania reflects the political divisions in the country. Mm-hmm. It is a microcosm of them in many ways. Yes. The political divisions, economic divisions, cultural divisions between urban areas, rural areas, suburban areas. Uh, and what that kind of foreshadows for our politics more widely and kind of what it means for our national elections. Mm-hmm. I mean, no question. I mean, it is it is a bellwether for how other things move and change in the political landscape. And it's I, I believe it's it's got to be a lot of fun to cover because it is so it's exciting too. I mean, it's still sort of a place where retail politics is still very relevant and important. People are um, connected in, in a variety of different ways. The marketplace has changed in terms in terms of the economy, what it is that drives the economy um, in Pennsylvania. So you really have uh, you have a really big job to do, and it's um, it's it's great. I mean, it's it's great work. I believe it's probably a lot of fun too, because Pennsylvania certainly does produce a lot of tremendous leadership. Um, as it relates to here in Washington, D.C., but also you've got a history of tremendous 
mayors in Philadelphia, governors that are, you know, national spokespeople for a variety of issues. So it's really, it's a lot of fun to watch that state um, change and evolve. Uh, Do you have a favorite place to get a cheesesteak when you are in the city, though? (laughs) You know, that's a question I get a lot. I'm sure you do. Maybe it's because I'm a Jersey guy originally or whatever. I never got really into the cheesesteak thing. Like, I love the food in Philadelphia. There's amazing food, both high-end food, both kind of sandwiches and street food. Um, But I never got into cheesesteaks. So uh, there there are definitely a a bunch of places. I love going to Reading Terminal Market when I'm back. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a huge variety of places there that it's close to where I lived when I lived in Philadelphia. Um, And so I still love to go there. And and there's a huge sampling of places. There's a place called... uh, called Bex, if I'm remembering right, that has this ridiculous sandwich called the Rec that's a mix of like salami and steak and cheese and all different things. So that's one that if I'm if I'm really feeling like I can really indulge, that's one that that I love to get. You gotta I go. I never did get into the cheesesteak. <laughs> I love a cheesesteak, but I also grew up Italian in New Jersey. So I, you know, give me, you know, give me a, a sub sub sandwich any day long and I'm happy about it. But uh, and also smart for you not to show loyalty to one or another because there is no, no bigger <laughs> debate in the city of Philadelphia than which one is the best. So good on you. Good answer. Um, tell exactly. me. <laughs> smart. So smart. Tell me a little bit about, um, Jonathan, how you are when you're in the Capitol um, and you're obviously connecting primarily with Pennsylvania folks, but you have to do some spillover into that South Jersey market. What kinds of things, um, what kinds of things in general do you think are the most exciting to cover right now? Like what kinds of issues are lighting people up? Like, is it the economy? Is it, um, is it vaccine hesitation? Like, is there something in particular that sort of causes folks to really get, excited right now for for the philly south jersey region i mean what i have found is that so much of the interest in our politics now is is so much of the interest in congress even is really driven by national politics and it's remarkable to the extent that basically people want to know during the trump years they wanted to know if somebody was with trump or against trump whatever the policy debate of the moment was and and it's kind of become, and it's that way a bit with, with the Biden administration as well. Mm-hmm. And so what I find really moves the needle the most right now are stories that have that kind of nexus to national politics. Um, and there certainly is interest in policy. Like one thing I've discussed with my editors that it's rare in Washington these days, and I'm sure you know that actual policy gets moved and it's not just what you know a messaging bill where they put it up and they know it's not going to pass but both sides kind of stake out their positions and then campaign on it Mm -hmm. you know we're in a rare period where one party has enough control to actually make new policy and Mm -hmm. so we do try to cover that as well and and we have written about the things that biden has advanced or is trying to advance um and that certainly does draw interest but the thing that really lights people up are these political battles. Um, and I just think it's a reflection of how tribal politics have become and how existential people now see politics mm-hmm. being because they just feel like every fight is so is so vital. And so, um, you know, I, I think the media can be accused sometimes fairly of, of focusing on conflict. But I also think it's a thing that people are are interested in and they want to see kind of 
which side of these arguments, because they feel like these are important arguments, mm-hmm. is winning out and who's, is it moving? Is it not, is, you know, the policy they want moving or is it being blocked? Um, you know, there was so much interest around, there was significant interest around the healthcare repeal when Republicans were in control. Um, yeah. And and I think uh, and now there's a lot of interest from Democrats about are they going to get a lot of the priorities they have, whether it's voting rights or, or the, the the big stimulus or, I'm sorry, infrastructure bills that, mm-hmm. that Biden is supporting. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of it just comes back to kind of tribal reactions to, to these measures and, and people feeling like um, that they have small windows of opportunity on the Democratic side, at least, and Republicans hoping hoping to block it. Yeah. I also think I like your point about the fact that people are really um, – more than ever before, and you know, I've been at this for about the same amount of time, over the course of our careers, uh, we have seen an electorate um, that has become more and more aware of uh, politics and issues and have really become very polarized in terms of where they, where they are, right? They're either very much in one camp or very much in another, whereas before it used to be a place where it was a lot less of that. Uh, and so I'm sure that I have to believe that, especially in a, in a, in a, on a beat like you have that, uh, in a region of the country that you are, I'm sure you hear a lot from, uh, from writers or excuse me, from, uh, readers about the coverage that you're producing and how they feel about that one way or the other. And that's got to be, I think, one of the more difficult pieces of, of journalism today is that that direct access that those readers have then with reporters in terms of feedback, like whether they love or hate the coverage that you have offered them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I just wrote a, a 9-11 anniversary piece that I knew was going to draw some pretty angry reactions from some people. And, and it certainly did. And, and it is one of the tougher aspects of the job. Um, and it can be rewarding on the flip side. I mean, sure. the hard part is that people, you know, can decide what information they want to hear very easily these days. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's accurate information and some, a lot of times it's not. And yeah. they, if you don't reflect some of the information that they're hearing, they think that you're lying or leaving out the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and And that becomes difficult. It's hard to kind of, explain that and to say well no you know some of these things you've heard are distorted or are not true to begin with or are lacking context Mm -hmm. um and and it becomes difficult and then they think because we're not reporting it in the way that they're hearing it through the outlets that they've chosen chosen that we're somehow deceiving people Um, and i think that you know we still have very high standards of accuracy and we have we have to report for a wide audience so mm-hmm. we're not just reaching only liberals or only conservatives. So sure. we're constantly being checked by both sides uh, for, you know, our accuracy and our, and our fairness. Mm-hmm. I will say the one flip side is sometimes, you know, I try to write back to people who write to me. I think if they've taken the time to read my work, I, I should take the time to respond to them. That's great. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, I just get back more angry a further angry message mm-hmm. but a lot of times a simple explanation people really appreciate it they they realize that there's a human kind of on the other end of this that you're not just a name in the paper mm-hmm. and that 
you know, yeah, there's a thoughtful reason with the way our stories come out. And, you know, there's a lot of small decisions that go into every single story that we write uh, that add up to a, to the big picture. And mm-hmm. you explain the decisions and, and a lot of them are close calls. You know, should this sentence be in the third paragraph or maybe the fifth or sixth paragraph? Should, mm-hmm. should I use this word or that word? You know, this quote or that quote? Um, and it's a lot of small decisions, but I think when you explain to people, here's why I chose this, here's why I wrote it this way, here's why I included this example and not that example, they at least see that like there's a thought process there and that you're not just like carrying out some agenda. And yeah. and every now and again, you do get a positive interaction that way. And somebody just says, thanks for writing. I appreciate it, even mm-hmm. if they disagree. Um and so that's, you know, that's part of the job, I think. I think it's part of the job to be accessible, um, and I try to be, um, although it can often be, as you mentioned, kind of, it can be unpleasant at times, but yeah, yep. that, that's part of what we sign up for. Well, and it wasn't like that 20 years ago. Um, you know, letters may have come in the mail or, or comments may have been made uh, over the phone, but it wasn't quite as transactional and easily um, transmitted to you as a writer. I think that's probably the hardest part, though, is that, you know, 20 years ago, as I said, it wasn't quite as easy to connect. Uh, Letters would come through. And so I have to believe that some of that really does uh, influence the way that you consider the way you cover pieces and the way you cover stories, not necessarily in the way that you cover them as much as um, there's a consideration before you press send to your editor about who am I gonna? Who am I gonna make angry with this piece as I send it through? There'll be someone for sure that'll have something to say about this. Also, though, ethics and journalism is higher and more of a priority ever before as it relates to the more traditional publications like the ones you're at. There are plenty of others that are um, a little more liberal and a little more uh, loose with the way that they cover uh, information. And I think that unfortunately, those sources receive the same amount of attention and the same amount of credibility for um, consumers of information. And that's the other sort of barrier that we are fighting uh, as it relates to communication and and journalism is that some sources are more um, ethically based than others. So I just feel like it's a tremendous, we're in sort of a tremendous revolution here as it relates to information transmission. It is, it is. And I'll tell you, when I talk to people in Pennsylvania, both liberal and conservative, I'm just kind of ordinary voters. Um, one of the things you hear really frequently is that people have a hard time distinguishing between what sources are reliable and are not. Mm-hmm. And because like, if you're looking at a Twitter feed, you know, a story from a reliable source and a story from one that's not, they, they can look very similar. Or yeah. if your friends are posting it on Facebook, they can look really similar. Mm-hmm. And, and it, there is a lot of confusion out there, I think, about how news gets reported about the differences in kind of ethics and standards between different news organizations. Um, You know, when I've talked to groups, a lot of the questions are just really, and and I don't mean this in a bad way, they're just like really basic everyday questions. How do you decide what goes on the front page? How do you decide what the headline is? How do you decide which story you write? And I think our business really needs to do a better job of being transparent and explaining our process mm-hmm. um you know i i wish people could kind of see some of the discussions and the procedures that happen every day that make this the news come together uh because like uh, my experience everywhere i've worked and, and certainly at the inquirer is that 
people are very thoughtful about it. And like I said, there's a lot of difficult decisions that get made on the fly every day. Mm -hmm. And we might not get all those decisions right, but I think they are being made in good faith and, and there's a good reasoning for why things happen. Like, again, you might look at it the next day and say, well, you made the wrong decision. And I'm sure I have. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, we're making a lot of decisions under a lot of pressure on the fly. And there's a lot of I information. A there's a lot yeah. of things. I mean, you know, one day you could be telling a story and look up and say, there's another one that I would have liked to have written, but I'm already, you know, knee deep in this other piece of, exactly. of news. Um, and that's, I think it's a blessing and a curse because there is so much information. It, it provides you a, a steady stream of stories that you can chase and report and, and cover. Um, but it also makes it difficult because there's only so much of your time that you can give. Absolutely. And we have to really pick our spots and we get a lot of emails. Why aren't you writing this? Why aren't you writing that? And, mm-hmm. You know, typically the answer is like we write or I write in my paper where we have, where there's some Pennsylvania or New Jersey nexus where we can make a difference. That's going to be different because I'm covering national politics. That's different from the New York times or the Washington post or the wall street journal. Mm-hmm. I should not be doing the same story that they are because that's what we have a wire service for. Right. I'm doing a story where I can write something that I have an expertise on that they don't. Mm-hmm. And that I can write something that people aren't going to get anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and so that's my goal. So like, they'll say, well, why aren't you writing about when Biden did this overseas? Well, you know, I don't have, uh, you know, an expertise or, or inside sources on foreign policy or in the Pentagon. Right. But if it's a story involving the Pennsylvania Senate race, if it's a story involving a policy that really affects Pennsylvania, that is where I should have better sourcing than anybody else. And that's where we do try to make our mark. Sure. And that makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I think the one thing I'm, I've been trying to do as I've built out sort of the guest list for the podcast is I've tried to identify folks from different parts of the newsroom too, uh, because it is important to get the perspective from the reporter like yourself, who's covering the specific beat. It's also good to hear from folks that are making decisions about, uh, opinion editorials and how those the ones that get pitched finally do make it over the line to be in the paper because that's a big question on the side of PR there is no client that ever has come into a situation where they're saying we have to promote this where one key element of that strategy of that you know the tactics that that lead up to the strategy is that we must have an op-ed well if I had a dollar for everyone that didn't get placed, I would, you know, probably have more money to build out the podcast or, you know, do something else because it is a very difficult uh, lens to sort of look through. And I think you're right in that the more the industry helps people understand how those decisions are arrived upon, the more people will say, Oh, okay. I think I see that. I understand why that was decided and done the way it was. So it is, it is definitely to me, I'm a communications geek and I, I really dig the way that the business works. Um, I like to know all that too. So that has been um, really important for me as, as I, as I build it out. And I even had a meteorologist on the show at one point who talked to me about sort of how she got her degree in meteorology and you know how that all came together. So to me, it's really fun to know all that. Um, John, so here we are. We're going to be airing this show on a Friday. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, you're a, a North Jersey guy covering Philadelphia and South Jersey, living in D.C. I love this. You're like the trifecta of all cool things to me. Um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about, you know, we're sort of like we're coming in of, but then maybe going back 
the pandemic is sort of weaved and wended. So uh, choices about social life uh, are always a little bit difficult. What kinds of things are you doing on the weekends to keep uh, to keep yourself entertained? Yeah, so, you know, most of my weekends begin Saturday morning, long walk with the dog. Um, you know, I'm fortunate to live near near the Anacostia River. So I'll, I'll take her out along there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for me, Saturday mornings are also like long, long runs. And the phone goes away. Um, nice. And I'm just out and I get to run through DC. There's the waterfront, there's a route I can take that takes me past most if not all of the major monuments Mm -hmm. um so saturday morning that's that's my kind of my ritual my my moment to decompress my moment to kind of be away from everything i didn't become Um, i didn't become a runner until i came to this town because there are just so many great running routes and there's so many great cool things to see and it does force you to leave your phone behind absolutely it's a great running town and yeah I, i never run with my phone it's just and, and, you know, it's just, it, it's great. Even when the weather's bad, I'm, I'm happy to just kind of be out and about. And so that's my Saturday morning. You know, I'm usually watching some of some of the English Premier League on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I love to, to kind of wrap up the weekend. I love to grill. Um, so I'll grill out in my back. I learned that from, from my stepfather. And, uh, um, you know, this, this weekend, I think it's going to be steak, which I'm looking forward to very much. Nice. Um, got a birthday coming up so we'll have a steak for that but uh you know most most weekends there's something on the grill and um, to kind of wrap up the weekend and, and have a good dinner and, and a little food leading into the week yeah well that's a great way that's a great way to reset and get started for the for the monday crunch um all right so we've reached the end of our conversation but the the most important or to, you know one of the most important questions i like to ask is who of your colleagues that you've worked with would you recommend for a future episode yeah, I, I was thinking about this. I would recommend um, a good colleague of mine, Chris Brennan, who's in Philadelphia, and he has covered Philly politics for a long time. And, you know, it's it's a gritty, tough po- political beat, and, and Chris really matches the beat um, with, with his persona, with his writing style. He's really punchy. Uh, he's really sharp. Um and, and he's been a kind of a Philly fixture for a long time now. And so I think he would be a great, especially if you're looking to get kind of outside of the national political world and mm-hmm. into more of like a big city politics. Yeah. Chris is a great guy to talk to. I love it. Well, I'll tell Chris that you sent me his way. Absolutely. That would be great. John Tamari, it was so fun to talk to you today. Thanks so much for doing the show. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm so glad you joined me. And I'm so glad you're looking forward to the November 17th conference with PR Daily. Because I'll be there and a moderator for one of their great panels. Discover what's on the horizon at the Future of Communications virtual conference on November 17th. Learn the strategies, tactics, tools, and technology you'll need to position yourself well just in time for your 2022 communications planning. And don't forget, Friday Reporter is the code to use to get $100 off of your registration. We'll see you next week. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. 
You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.